Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unlocking the Potential of Assessments, the show that delves into creating, delivering, and reporting on valid and reliable assessments. In each episode, we chat with assessment luminaries, influencers, subject matter experts, and customers to discover and examine the latest in best practice guidance for all things assessment. I'm your host, John Kleeman, founder of Question Mark, the industry leader in assessment management software. Today, we're honored and I'm really pleased to welcome Martin Roeder, a pioneer in educational technology, leading innovator in computer-based testing, e-learning, and adaptive learning since 2000. Martin Roder is now Chief Measurement and Learning Officer at AI and education company Reed Labs after joining them last year. He was the Chief Executive of ACT from 2015 to 2020, and before that, the CEO of CETO for 13 years, an international organization based in the Netherlands in educational measurement. In 2007, he co-founded Criterion, who were the first company in the world to offer online proctoring. Martin has been a member of the Board of Directors of the Association of Test Publishers for 10 years and was its chair in 2010. In 2016, he received the Professional Contributions and Service to Testing Award of the ATP. He served on the Board of Directors of IMS Global and on its Executive Committee and briefly as their Interim Chair. Martin has also been a member of the Advisory Board of the Reach Higher Initiative, chaired by Michelle Obama. There's lots more, but Martin, we wouldn't have time for the interview if we covered it all. So let's dive in. Welcome. Thanks, John. And, and thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm very honored and pleased to be, to be here. And thank you for that great introduction. Well, look, I'm, I'm very pleased to be speaking with you. Let me start off like I've started off with everybody else. How did you get into assessment? Well, it is a long story, but I'll keep it short because, you know, we have so many other things to discuss on this podcast. Uh, I Originally, I was not, was not even close to, to being in testing um, because, uh, you know, when I, when I uh, came from high school, I combined my study in, in language and literature with freelance work uh, writing articles for magazines that got me into a whole career of reporting, publishing, and so it didn't look like uh, assessment at all. So at one point, I worked for a company, Reed Elsevier, who many will know, and then I became responsible for the training and education division, which included large uh, certification programs, especially for safety at work. And so that's what, how I learned about doing assessments uh, so then, and now we're talking 2002, that got me into the job of CEO at CETO. But, you know, when I started, I really had to learn a lot. And, and hopefully over, over the years, I have done so. And so CETO, I mean, they're one of the sort of largest examples in Europe, I believe. What kind of organization are they and what are you proud of making happen when you were there? It's correct. It's one of the larger testing organizations and exam boards in Europe. What's special is that it is a bit of a hybrid organization. So about half of the of the work is um, government projects like um, writing or developing the national exams for the Netherlands. And in that sense, you know, it's more of, of a sort of a government organization, be it independent. And then the other half of the income comes from the market. So on. so they have been my job to make the organization less dependent on the on the government funding and politics especially. Uh, so I developed a lot of new uh, commercial um, activities and also outside the Netherlands. So CETO ha- has become very international over those years. 
Uh, of course, not everything uh, went okay. There's, there's things I learned along the way that I can now benefit from. But two, two things I'd like to mention. One is the fact, and, and CETO was very specialized in doing formative assessments, the fact that um, we were able to, de to develop a whole program throughout uh, K-12. So it would start with, you know, as early as or two or three-year-olds being monitored uh, through uh, assessments, uh, of course, in a very playful way, but then it got all the way through end of high school, so th that whole stretch. And so we could monitor growth and development uh, and make that actionable. That that was really something I, I liked. And the other thing I'm, I'm, I'm also proud of is the scientific work that the team has done in those 13 years, which was very advanced, you know, lead, uh, world-leading uh, expertise in, a, in testing, but also in developing models for, for adaptive learning, which, which is now uh, pretty common, but was very groundbreaking at the time. So do you want to talk a little bit about how formative assessment aids learning is a very hot subject, but I think could do with some elucidation? Well, so your know, for, formative assessment back then, and now I'm, now I'm talking about developments around 2000, it was already very different than what, what people were used to in, 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 in schools because you, you created a, a feedback with it, a feedback loop. So uh, if you would measure uh, development and you could, you could st scale that vertically, then you, you could say, well... Um, in order to get to your learning goals at the end of the year or at the end of, of school, then well, you're at at this stage, so you need to do more. So it, it, that was really a tool um, to do diagnostics and say, well, you know, base your your learning interventions on that. So uh, in in those days, it was already quite modern. If you would would do maybe two, three, or four formative measurements a year so that you could make graphs and 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 see the growth patterns and then you know the teacher could could do interventions based on that so right now of course the development is more towards real time which is it is the next step in formative assessment where you combine assessment with learning in real time and so the key is to have a, a fast feedback loop so that you discover what people know both the student and the teacher and uh, redirect the learning is that is that the key that's the key so uh, you know if you you can do a, a lot of high stakes testing and you know one one example i got last week i got the results in from the iowa state test for my kids uh, and we're talking uh you know end of october but that test was taken in april so so you understand you yeah. know the the, the, it's not very useful, maybe for accountability purpose uh, for the, of the state and the school district, but you know for the for the students, it has no use at all because you you cannot learn from it. So any kind of measurement should inform the learning so that we do, so we create better outcomes. That makes sense, and, mm -hmm. and maybe we'll come back a little bit more to, to formative assessment and automation and AI and things a bit later. Mm -hmm. um, so I think from CETO, you you joined ACT as their CEO uh, yeah. for, for for five years or so. Mm -hmm. What were the key things you did to make a difference at ACT? Yeah, there's, it was a whole transformation in all respects. So. Um, 
first the first thing I had to do was renew all the technologies because they were a real legacy. Some of some of the uh, platforms that were used for the testing dated from the 80s and the 90s, so it was really antiquated. That really had to be replaced. That was a, a lengthy and costly operation. But then also prepare the organization for the future, and also and most specifically, you know, to diversify the, the strategy. So it was largely dependent on the high stakes admissions testing. The ACT test accounted for almost ninety percent of all revenues when I came. So that was one of my uh, duties to make it less reliant because you know I saw bad weather coming. And that's what I said. So I said, "Well, now at the peak, we uh, so we can only expect decline, you know." And and that came true, and and was actually accelerated by the the pandemic. And so what I've done is diversify um, revenues um, by introducing learning and navigation to the strategy. I'm especially proud of the uh, the learning business that was created. Uh, that is fully adaptive and assessment and and learning fully integrated uh, right now so uh, you know that th- those were a few of the things i've done so we couldn't bypass this issue without asking you for your view on the act test mm-hmm. is, is it is it a, a good predictor for college admissions and what are your views on the sort of various criticisms of it well i understand the criticism it's it's not an ideal instrument and i hope we have something better in the, in the future and i'm sure of that but but you know, uh, when when I joined ACT in 2015, there was not much else that that, it, that made a good comparison between students. Of course, it is quite a reliable predictor, at, at least for the first years in college. Uh, and GPA is is that as well. That's so. That's the average grade in the United States that students get. But a GPA in one school or one region of the nation is could be something completely different in another region. So uh, while it is quite a good predictor, the comparability of it between students is very, uh, very limited. So uh, to have one standardized element in the whole admissions uh, mix is still very important because otherwise you you cannot make a fair comparison. And then, you know, right now they say, well, well, we would serve equity by throwing away the test. But in fact, what you do is, you know, you damage the equity by by removing the, the comparability. So that is a bit of the issue. Uh, like, like I said, it's not an ideal, you know, to sit down for three hours in a very high stakes um, situation. But, you know, that was the best thing uh, we have at the moment. Everyone will be working on alternatives and also create a more holistic view on students beyond just that uh, academic test score, standardized score, but uh, well, we're not ready yet. So I, I think it's too early to throw away, away the baby with the bathwater. No, and I understand. I mean, there's quite a lot of criticism, not just of the ACT, but of other admissions tests in the US and other parts of the world, that there's too much correlation with family wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what is this? what is the way ahead for... For, for, for admissions testing, is it? Yeah, you could say that family wealth, there's a correlation, that's for sure, but it's not a causal relation. So you yeah. cannot blame the test for that. So, you know, if you, if you, if you feel bad about that, that uh, uh, situation, you know, the divide between wealth and poverty, so you have to, to solve the societal uh, issues 
and you know it's I, also, I sometimes make the comparison that you know you you, you cannot you cannot blame uh, the doctor or or even the thermometer you know for for being ill so you, you of course you can throw away the thermometer but that doesn't take away the fever so uh, that that is a good comparison because you know the, the test is just a measuring tool it is uh, it is objective and you can you cannot blame a bias for that. So really, we need to be doing better education, and maybe uh, let's talk a little bit about your role at uh, Reed, and maybe mm-hmm. we can get on to whether AI can pr- produce that uh, education and uh, perhaps help le- level up uh, people. What, who are Reed, and am I pronouncing them right? And what do you do with them? Yeah, so the so the company was founded eight years ago in Korea, um, and they, they like us to say Reed instead of Reed, but you know. Um, I'm practicing on that, and sure. uh, but uh, so it started off as a as a more of a test prep company. They would develop apps for students, which would help them in the very competitive Korean education system. Um, and then you know, uh, at some point, about one half years ago, they said, "Well, we want to globalize," um, and so they, they decided to open a, up a. U.S. branch, with they, which they called Red Labs, um, and so that was to to start a global global business. And not long after that, I joined the company. Uh, so um, in the United States, so far, you know, the, most of our business is in uh, AI as a service. So we we serve education companies, uh, but also corporate companies in their learning. So we infuse their learning with AI to make it more efficient and to create better outcomes. So it's more of a B2B uh, business right now, but we're, we're planning, and that's one of the things I'm heavily involved with, to, uh, to go directly to school districts and, uh, and offer adaptive learning uh, platform and services. So what do you mean by adaptive learning? Yeah, that's a good question. Because uh, if you would ask you know, like an average parent or student in school, then uh, probably most of them would not know the answer of what adaptive learning is. So it's 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 a more of a, a professional term that we that we use uh, for making uh, the learning dynamic. So you combine test or quiz questions with learning resources on a very granular granular level so that you can make the learning process very dynamic and personalized. So with each question you ask, you get data. And with that, based on that data, you make predictions on the, the mastery level of the student. And then uh, you will pick the right learning resource based on that. It could be a short video or short piece of text. So it's very different than the traditional textbook where you have just one printed copy and you go from cover to cover always in the same way, one size fits all. So this is very personalized and very, very dynamic. So adaptive learning, it's called adaptive because the learning adapts to the individual. So is, it, is there a bit of an analogy with a computer adaptive test whereby that also has different questions depending on ability and it makes an estimate of the ability and then, uh, but then in the learning, it, it gives you the learning needed to take you up to the next level absolutely yeah that that's a it's a great comparison uh so because uh in adaptive testing also you know the system will make an, uh, an estimate of the ability of the student 
and then you know make take will pick a more difficult or easier question. I think the the difference in adaptive learning is that of course the uh, the difficulty level plays a role, but it's also the whole domain. So it, it works off of a, for instance a knowledge graph. Mm -hmm. So so it will decide once you, once you master a certain specific learning objective. It will move on to the next objective that it will take from the knowledge graph and then, you know, will ask questions and offer learning resources of, uh, of that. So it's, so that's the difference. It will, it will also create an individual pathway for the students in the learning process. And does adaptive learning have to use AI or is AI a separate? No, separate no it doesn't, doesn't have to. So it, and, and that's not being done uh, in most cases in you know companies that people uh, might know like Newton and and Dreambox, they are they are not using a AI. You you could even argue if if that if it is really adaptive learning, it is uh, you know sometimes you could say yeah it is personalized but it's not necessarily adaptive because in ad real adaptive learning both the the learning resources and the test items should be variables. It's not fixed. But our experience is, and we have based that on research, is that if you use AI algorithms instead of normal statistical uh, algorithms or uh, IRT-based, that AI is working much more efficient and, and you know, create better outcomes. So basically, if you configure the AI properly, it mm -hmm. will do adaptive or personalized learning more effectively than just algorithms. Yeah, that's correct. So, so what sort of things is it uh, is it good for and uh, can it can do better? Is it jumping to the right place or you mean with jump to the right place? You know, in the in the in the textbook materials or yeah, that's correct. So it will recognize patterns because you know you you have trained the mo the model with thousands and in some cases even millions of data points. So the the machine will recognize certain pathways and recognize certain patterns. And, and will make much better predictions with much more accuracy and reliability than just regular statistical models. And I know when, when people talk about AI, they're often worried about bias. I mean, is there a risk that our education AI will be better at uh, teaching some demographics than other demographics or, or push things in the wrong, wrong direction or... or well, there's certainly risk uh, around using AI, as there is, you know, with any tool, but especially AI. And that's one of the values of my company, Red, Red Labs, is that you know you have to to build safeguards around that. So we uh, use different values in in all of our work, and one of which is that we have to serve equity completely. You have to be uh, very uh, transparent. Transparency is also a very good value. And then also to be able to prove the efficacy of the tool or the platform is also very important. But, you know, looking at bias, I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about AI, uh, what I, AI can do. You know, it's basically making assumptions or predictions based on a lot of data. And of course, one thing you have to take care of is that you feed the model with the right data. So that's why, you know, you, you can serve equity the best. If you put more equitable data in the in the machine, it'll, that will make less biased predictions. But I must say, you know, the misunderstanding is, is, is about bias in general, because, you know, bias is such a, a human thing. So I think in, in our daily life, 
we make a lot of assumptions and we make a lot of decisions based on a very limited data. So uh, because if we if we could only make decisions based on a, a complete data set, you know, 24 hours in a, in a day would not be enough to lead our daily life because we're making decisions constantly. And, and we the only thing you can do that is is based that on very limited data, only a few observations or, or a few things you remember. So all of you know our behavior in general is based on bias and and that's good because that's very efficient as long as the bias is uh, is not a bad bias so there's good and there's bad bias. Uh, I think the good thing about AI is at uh, how we use it is that we base it on much larger data sets than what a human is doing in general. And so it, it is much more reliable and and the risk of bad bias is much lower. So it's more about how you manage bias than avoiding bias because bias is, is a natural thing. And and also I think as an organization, you, you have to stand out for for using the AI in a in a, in a good in a good manner. One of the reasons why uh, we founded with with the Dextera Institute together, we founded AdSafe AI uh, collaboration. It's it's an initiative where you, you can become a member. Then you have to abide by certain rules. Already, more than a hundred organizations signed up in the in the recent months. So that initiative is very successful and proves that we we think. You know, equity around AI and the use of AI in education is very important. And how fast do you think AI will progress in education? Is it going to just be an outlier, or are mm. we all 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 children going to be uh, taught by AI soon? Or how, how fast are things going to change? Yes, fast, but also not fast. So I think AI will start playing a role in 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 every aspect of education very soon. In in many cases, you won't even notice. Um, and you know the AI is the buzz at the moment in the industry, as you might have noticed. Sure. You know, if, if you look at the, uh, for instance, EATP conference uh, program, you know there was were so many items, presentations on AI. It's it was incredible. So I think it will will go fast. What will not go fast is, you know, the development of of the AI itself, and that, and that is something. I'm working on uh, as one of my special projects. So most of the AI that is now used in education is very specific. You know, it, you train an, a model for a very specific task or purpose, uh, and it can do only that. So uh, I think I think that what you know what is the uh, the future in in using AI in education is a more general. AI, a use of AI, a general AI, so you can use the AI as a as a, tu- as a real tutor, and then also using different interface. So it's not like using your keyboard or or even um, you know any uh, any other computer interface. It will it will be spoken, so um, voice interaction with be- between human and machine. And I'm afraid you know that future is still uh, many years ahead of us. So anyone who who would try to access a um, client or a customer service uh, that is using an AI will have noticed that it is still very clunky, and uh, you know in many cases you have you have to get back to a real person to get your uh, thing done. I think that's still far away. So there will be a, 
a lot of AI applications in education that are very specific, that can and also um, replace a repetitive task of, of, a, of a teacher, like grading an essay or, or even creating creating uh, assignments. Uh, and that is that is work that can easily be replaced by an AI. But uh, you know, to be a, like a general AI tutor, that is still um, challenging. So, so we're some way away from an AI system that we can just expect that uh, all schools will be able to take students to the same level and, and mm-hmm. get rid of some of these equity challenges. But equally, there's some progress happening and some things will improve. Well, uh, so yeah, you, you make a, a great point here. So if, if, you, if you're at a point that you can use and, and deploy all these kind of technologies at the hand of the teacher, then uh, that will definitely help leveling the playing field uh, in the classroom. That will definitely help those students that, are, that stay behind for, for whatever reason or those students that, who don't have the right resources or background or, or home situation even that you know that will will help them through to get to to their learning learning goals. No, I think that is a very exciting promise for the future. So, look in a, in a moment, we'll have to stop, and I'd like to ask you the advice you can give people to take away. But just before mm-hmm. I do that, you've worked for a lot of different organizations in your career. You worked for a Dutch organization, CETO, then one yeah. of the leading American educational organizations, ACT, and now you're on to to RID, who are originally from Korea, but now more U.S. and commercial. Different organizations, any sort of observations on the difference of international culture and what's the best kind of organization to, to be in? Yeah, uh, well, all those organizations I work with much, much pleasure um, on trying to in, improve education outcomes and, and, you know, advancing educational technologies. And, and they were all very, uh, very interesting in their own way. So, um, you know, this would also be one of the um, advices that I would give to to anyone. So, I had at a, you know, the uh, the honor and the, the pleasure of, of working for uh, in in different geographies and different educational systems, and that is uh, I learned a lot from that because, and I would not say there's one educational system that is ideal. But you know, for, uh, the advice for me to others would be: sometimes you have to look over the border, or over the horizon, and see how, you know how other people are are doing things, and how that system works. For instance, people in the United States take it for granted that you how the system is built up from you know, from early age to to university, and how those transitions work, and especially how you place students in the next phase of education where you know you have admissions tests and admissions processes whereas for instance in Europe uh, we're very much used to to taking and, and, and the same like in UK as you know you take like final exams for for, for secondary education and then if, if you pass that you know you get access to higher educations almost automatically and also I think so people should look at the economics or the econo- economical side of the educational system. And like in the United States, I, you know, it's I think it's a, it's a shame that money uh, is is also determining opportunities for for young people. So there, there should be a way to to make the uh, especially higher education less expensive, and the dependency uh, of education on. For instance, local or, or state tax is not a very good invention. 
you know, so in other countries they're, they're doing much better and you know people could learn from from other countries in in how to to solve those things so i think that's a great message to end on that uh, people should uh, look at uh, other countries and uh, see if they can learn from them and i'm sure we can all do some learning there. Martin, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. We've covered a lot of different ground and I really love hearing from you and I, I'm sure our listeners will too. Yeah, thank you, John. It was a pleasure to, to join. So thank you everybody so much for joining us today. Uh, please reach out to me directly at johnacquestionmark.com with any questions, comments, or if you'd like to keep the conversation going. You can also visit the Question Mark website at questionmark.com to register for any of our many best practice webinars. Thanks again, and please tune in for another exciting podcast discussion we'll be releasing shortly.